0: All right. Um, we should probably begin. Um, thanks for coming. My name's Nick Bisley from Latrobe Asia, and this is another Latrobe Asia seminar. We're very fortunate to have two um, of Australia's leading Indonesian politics specialists with us. One is our own Dirk Thompson, um, on my left. If you're not familiar with him, and seated in the front is Dave McRae. Um, Dave is a senior research associate at the University of Melbourne, and previously uh, has been at the Lowy Institute. Uh, and with the ICG in Indonesia. We're also lucky in that both are not only Indonesian politics experts, they're both fluent in Indonesian, which I think is an important part of studying uh, any country's politics. The basic format for today's session, looking at the Jokowi presidency, is in two parts. Dirk will speak for about 15 or 20 minutes and about basically, how did he win Uh, how do we get President Jokowi and and I guess that should have a little asterisk next to it because it's subject to legal proceedings for which there should be a finding fairly soon but safe to assume that Jokowi will be the next president and then we'll turn to Dave who will talk about what we can expect from a Jokowi presidency and then we should have plenty of time left for questions. Without further ado I'll hand over to Dirk who will then pass on to Dave. So thank you.
1: Yeah, thanks, Nick. So maybe some of you were here in when did we have that last uh, seminar in March, yeah, just before just before the election um, when we had the parliamentary election. And b- back then, I spoke together with Ian here from the um, Hindi department about the Indian election. Um, that's done and dusted. That's a parliamentary system of government. They elected their parliament and now have their PM. In Indonesia, the big one came only in July, the presidential election. So it's separate from the parliamentary election, but I thought it may be useful to just briefly, especially for those of you who were not here or didn't follow um, Indonesian politics in any great detail, to br- briefly bring you back to what happened in April, because it's kind of important to how the parliament, uh, the presidential election in um, July unfolded. So um, we have a, a very fragmented party system in Indonesia with lots of small parties, and What's important is for the presidential election that you need to get a certain amount of votes or um, share per, uh, per percentage of the seats in parliament in order to be allowed to nominate a presidential candidate. And that um, barrier was uh, 25% of the vote and 20% of the seats. Or is it the other way around? No, yeah, got it right, good. <laughs> um, so you see that none of the parties got that. So what became necessary... Um, was that parties would form coalitions in order to nominate a candidate. And um, initially there were lots of people who wanted to become candidates for president, but in the end we only got two candidates. One nominated by the PDIP at the very top, together with PKB, Nasdem and Hanura, coalition of four. And that's Jacobi, the eventual winner. And then the other six joint forces to nominate Prabowo Subianto, whose party is the Garindra Party, which is the third party on the list. Um, Jacobi is officially a member of the PDIP, the strongest party, but he is not the PDIP's chairman or boss. He's a relative newcomer to the party, and that was quite important as the um, campaign unfolded because the party was not really 100% um, behind the campaign. But so... that's what parliament now looks like and whatever the outcome now, that always will need to be kept in mind. Maybe Dave will touch upon that later. When we um, think about what the um, Jokowi presidency may look like, he will face a very fragmented parliament in which not all the parties back him. I mean, there's a lot more to the dynamics of parliamentary politics in Indonesia, but um, just as a brief background to start with. So that was in April. Um, People had expected that PDIP would win this election bigger because they had nominated, they had announced that they would nominate Jokowi as their presidential candidate um, just before the election uh, for the parliamentary election but that so-called Jokowi effect didn't happen so PDIP was quite disappointed with this um, result and now they needed to put in a bit of work to make Jokowi president and they didn't really do it. So Uh, To introduce the two candidates, he is the mayor of Jakarta, or the the governor of Jakarta, I should say. He doesn't run by the uh, title of mayor, but it's Jakarta's at the end of the day. So the city, he is known to be a heavy metal fan. Um, (laughs) uh, His election was applauded in um, very influential media, such as the Metal Hammer later on. Um, and various other news media, so that was very noteworthy. But yeah, what's important, so he was nominated by the PDIP and he sort of, yeah, he provides a very different kind of image of a politician than Indonesia is used to. Um, The current president, Cecilia Bambang Yono, has his reputation for being aloof, um, not very engaged with the people, more engaged with protocol rather than... um, actually talking to ordinary citizens. So Jokowi has, in his previous post as governor of Jakarta and mayor of um, Solo, a small town in Java, has sort of displayed a very different attitude to politics, and that has made him very popular. He has also earned himself a reputation as a bit of a reformer, uh, both in Solo and to a lesser extent now in Jakarta. Um, this sort of reformist spirit was vaguely visible in his uh, program, in his, in his vision and mission, uh, not very articulate, but it was clearly there that he would, if elected, would become a different kind of leader that would promise at least to be um, a major change to Cecilia bama Um, He was widely supported by NGOs and democracy activists, but not so much perhaps because he was known as a very committed democracy activist, but more because his counterpart or his, his challenger, was um, Prabowo Subianto, and he is widely despised by democracy activists because he is a former general, and he is implicated in various human rights violations during the dictatorial Suharto regime that was in power until 1998. Um, He was um, implicated in abductions of democracy activists in 1998, also in human rights violations in East Timor. Um, So he... Was basically disgraced shortly after 1998, uh, but managed to reinvent himself as a political figure rather than an army general at around 2003, 2004. In 2003, or 2004, he tried to have his first attempt at becoming president. And then he joined a convention to become a candidate for one of the parties. He failed. In 2009, he ran as vice presidential candidate. Um, That ticket also failed. And so now in 2014, it was his third try. This time he ran himself as the presidential candidate. Um, He had founded his own party, the Gurindra Party. And he managed to shore up a lot of support, uh, to the surprise of um, many external observers, given his track record. But various of the mainstream parties, also some of the sort of fringe elements of the Islamist groupings of Indonesia gathered behind him. And so the contest that unfolded was between someone who promised also a very different style to Susilo um, Bambang Yudhoyono, but not the kind of down-to-earth, people-engaged style, but rather uh, sort of return um, to perhaps not outright dictatorial regime as Suharto had it, but in his campaign he often made references to... Um, being unhappy with the current state of Indonesian democracy to um, reverting back to a previous constitution or the constitution in its original state. We still have the same constitution, but it's been amended several times to make it more democratic. So he wanted to roll back quite a few things. Um, and yeah, it, that was what made this choice that Indonesians had um, as stark as probably never before. In previous elections, it seemed as if it was candidates that were... Barely distinguishable, but this time, at least from the outside, it looked as as if there was a very clear choice. Um, We now, we've just talked about this over lunch, um, there was a post-election survey that seems to indicate that perhaps Indonesian voters didn't actually see it that way, Um, but from the outside, at least, it looked as if these two would lead Indonesia into a very different kind of future. Okay, so when... Um, the parliamentary election was held. Jokowi had uh, support in the polls of about 50%. And um, Prabowo at that time, I think, was at around 20%. So he had a very, very clear lead. And it seemed as if Jokowi was a shoo-in to win this. But then between April and July, Prabowo consistently, steadily closed the gap. So that we, when we got to one week before the election... Polls actually had them almost even, both at about 45 to 50% support. So how did that happen? Given that Jokowi was um, deemed to be, yeah, unbeatable, it was his election to lose. I uh, put three images up there to illustrate that. One was here. This these are the party powerful from the PDIP, the party that nominated Jokowi. In the middle, you see Megawati Sukarnoputri, who is the chairwoman of that party and who would have really liked to have another go at the presidential office herself. But she had it herself between 2001 and 2004, didn't do very well, and then ran again in 2004 and 2009 and lost twice against Cecilia um, bamang So eventually was she, she was convinced to make way and allow Jokowi to become the, president, uh, the candidate for PDIP. But there are a lot of people who are more loyal to Megawati than to Jokowi within that party. Um, and you see here, someone pointed out to me that none of them look particularly thrilled on this image. And that image was actually when they announced that Jokowi would be their candidate. So rather than saying, here's our candidate, he's up with 50% in the polls, we're going to win this, they were all like, yeah, all right, we're going to do this. So, and during the campaign later on, you saw that support from the party was not really forthcoming. So that was one reason why Jokowi cornered his lead. The second was, um, there was a lot of um, what in Indonesia is called black campaigning. Um, we know that from US campaigns as well, where candidates are trying to discredit each other with lots of rumors, um, propaganda. So there were numerous of these uh, floating around in social media and mainstream media. Um, and many of them was that Jokowi was a puppet candidate, that he was not... Um, running for himself, but even if he gets elected, he will basically just be a puppet for Megawati and the rest of the old party. Um, he was also described as a puppet of the evangelical Christian minority in Indonesia, um, even though he is a Muslim, but he was often said to be close to ethnic Chinese who are active in spreading um, the Christian faith. Um, there were various other um, Black campaign issues just before I talk about Prabowo, I'll give you this one, which I picked from the internet. Um, a conspiracy between China and the United States to make Jokowi president, basically. Um, it has lots of errors. It's not really clear what it means, but these kinds of things circulated by saying Jokowi is not the man who will rule Indonesia if he becomes elected. But there are all these other people... Um, you see, here Christian evangelicals are there again. The Republican Party in the U.S. Um, Ahok here is his, that's his deputy in uh, in Jakarta. Various other so all these kinds of things worked quite well. Not everyone believed them, but bit by bit all these things came together, and Jacobi gradually lost um, his lead. His support remained steady, but he didn't win any new supporters. Whereas Prabowo. I put that image up here. Ran a very effective campaign. He was advised by um, a consultant from the United States, who in earlier elections had um, advised Republican candidates in the U.S. So it was a very slick campaign, very well funded. Prabowo's brother is one of the richest men in Indonesia. He put a lot of money into this, and part of his campaign there was—that's why I picked this image—that he was trying to sort of pick the best of the various presidents that Indonesia has had. There were a lot of um, references to Sokano, the old-style mics, um, the Peci during the speeches. Um, the rhetoric was often described as resembling Sokano <coughs> without, of course, um, the whole bigger picture of the Sukarno era at the time. But also then there were the um, references to the Soharto period, the New Order period, the more recent dict- dictatorship and he, his basic message was that he is a strong leader, a firm leader, that will um, restore Indonesia's pride domestically but also internationally. So that was a very professionally run campaign. And together, these three sort of factors contributed to him catching up very quickly. So you see here on the polls, um, this was in September, 2000, go here, September 2013, Jacoby had 50% support, Jacoby 11. Then by March 2014, just before the election. So basically you see that Jacoby was losing gradually, then catching up again, but only still to below the levels of support that he had um, by the end of 2013, whereas Prabowo's figures go up consistently. And so a week before the election, the poll was really too close to call. And then four or five days before the election, for the first time, the, the the polls indicated that the gap between the two was increasing again, that Jokowi was winning new supporters and Prabowo was stagnating. Um, and that momentum so shortly before the election was really important and partly explains why he did eventually win. And I come back to the reasons after I give you the result quickly. So this is what happened on polling day. We were both in Jakarta at the time and... Um, In the office of the CSIS, which is one of the think tanks in Jakarta, um, which ran a quick count of the result and announced that Jokowi and his running mate, JK, had just under 52%. Now, polling is big business in Indonesia, so there's not just one or two. There are numerous polling institutes out there. And at the top in blue, you see the ones that outside Indonesia are usually regarded as the reliable ones. And they all had Jokowi winning Just over 50 percent, and at the bottom you have four who announced that Prabowo had actually won, and that came. These announcements came very shortly after Jokowi had been declared the winner by the other institutes, and most observers um, indicated that these, the red ones here, had either been paid by Prabowo to announce this kind of result to muddy the waters, or were simply open supporters of Prabowo. so there was a bit of confusion. Um, it's, we, now that we have the result, the result is 53.5 for Jokowi, so the, the rely ones on, on the top, um, they came very close to what the General Election Commission announced on the 22nd of July. Um, so you see there's a gap. The election was actually held on the 9th of July, and In Indonesia it takes a very long time until the results are formally announced. It has to do with logistics, um, with the geography of the country. Um, Every vote has to be be counted on various administrative um, levels, so that's why it takes so long. But the end result was close to what the reliable quick count institutes had already announced. Um, Prabowo's intention was probably to, early on, sort of sow the seeds of uncertainty and make people believe that even if the Election Commission announces what they eventually did, that that can't be reliable. We have four polling institutes who said something different. Um, And that's also now partly formed the basis why he is now contesting the result in the constitutional court. So that's what we have. And now the main message from this talk, the title. So why did Jokowi eventually win? Why did he turn it around what seemed to be a trend that some observers, with whom I was in, only went to Indonesia four days before the election. And several people told me, don't come, it would be very depressing, Prabowo was going to win. It really looked like that because the trend had been so clear that Prabowo was constantly increasing um, his vote share in the polls, whereas um, Jokowi was stagnating. But just before the election, there were several things. One was there was a massive concert in Jakarta, in the big stadium in Jakarta, which was organized um, entirely by volunteers and musicians, and the parties who actually supported um, Jacobi were hardly involved, only at the, in the very background. And this concert drew massive crowds and sort of you know, served as an impetus to mobilize his supporters in an unprecedented manner. Um, this image here, Re- Relawan, that's the volunteers, Um, for Jacobo, who helped at the grassroots, realizing that the party, the PDIP, was actually not doing what they should have been doing. Um, Supporters of Jacobi from NGOs, activists, etc., they actually organized themselves. They had done so throughout the campaign, but this concert here, this sort of galvanized their energy once more, and in the last few days um, before the election, apparently, um, they really went out door-to-door, mobilizing voters, um, encouraging everyone to actually vote, and, of course, vote for the right candidate. And the third uh, factor that is often mentioned is, you see that an image from a TV debate. There were five televised debates between the two candidates about different policy issues. And um, for the first four, it seemed as if it was more or less even between the two candidates. Um, in two, Prabowo was deemed to be a bit more... Um, slightly the winner, whereas in in the two others Jokowi was. And then came the last one, and in that one, uh, Jokowi performed really well. And that, once again, even though it's unclear whether that actually brought voters on board, but it helped to sort of bring his supporters out and to once again be energized to actually mobilize, once again, at the grassroots, um, hand out pamphlets, um, and go door-to-door in the villages where he needed his support. So these three um, were probably... Um, responsible for that late surge, that turning tide in the end. And that then needs to be seen um, together with why he was generally popular, which was, as I said, he was seen as down-to-earth, as someone who had been capable of governing two cities in Java, um, Solo and Jakarta. Um, he was very popular for his constant um, you know, going down into the streets and talking to ordinary voters. Um, so if we take these things together, and if we look if we look at his um, sorry if, at his support base, I meant to talk about this briefly, um, then we get an idea roughly why he eventually won um, the polls. Shortly before the election, um, sort of gave us a very clear indication where he was popular, and he was popular especially amongst rural voters, relatively poor voters. Um, he was popular in the heartland of Java where. A lot of voters reside. Sixty percent of the Indonesian population live on Java. Um, There are five provinces on Java, but Central and East Java are two of the most populous ones, and he won there very convincingly. Um, This is where he is also from, what sort of his cultural, political cultural background is as well. He also enjoyed overwhelming support from women. Um, It's around um, The the gap in support for him was about 20 percent compared to Prabowo. So 60-40, so women either had a clear problem with Prabowo's sort of um, macho um, kind of campaign, or they liked Jokowi because of his sort of humble, um, transparent, down-to-earth approach. Why this is interesting is because if we look at what democracy theory often tells us, reformists or pro-democracy candidates win because they got the support from the middle class, that was not the case. The middle class was split more or less in the middle. In fact, was leaning towards Prabowo. Um, perhaps they wanted that kind of business security, that firm, um, secure environment. We don't know. Um, someone said that if, if this election safeguarded Indonesian democracy for the future, we got to thank um, the poor peasants and the women for saving it, not the rich and the middle class in Jakarta. <laughs> All right, and um, I started off by saying that... Um, well, didn't start off with that, but mentioned earlier the result is not 100% confirmed yet. The General Election Commission has announced it. It matches more or less what the reliable polling institutes had said, but Prabowo has not accepted that. Um, he has challenged it in the highest um, institu- um, judicial institution in Indonesia, the Constitutional Court, but he will... the. The gap in votes is, about, is just over 8 million. So he will need to provide evidence that he has been robbed of more than 8 million votes in order to actually um, have him declared as winner. So apparently his strategy has shifted now. Rather than um, declaring him the winner, he is now would be happy if the um, election was either repeated or if just individual votes were counted again. But neither of that seems likely to happen because he simply doesn't have the evidence that that happened. Um, so we'll have to wait for a few more days until it becomes formal and official. Um, but, yeah, as Nick said in the introduction, we can. I think it's safe to say that Jokowi will be Indonesia's next president and what he will be like, um, that is what Dave will now talk about. Um, he is certainly going to be different from Cecilia Bambang Yudayono, whether he would be better or not, I don't know. We'll see. You
2: Thank you, Dirk, and thanks everyone for coming today. I've been given the task of presidency, what to expect from Jokowi's presidency. It's an interesting job given that uh, he's yet to appoint a cabinet Uh, The budget for next year, which will be the budget he'll deal with the first 12 months, Uh, even the preliminary financial statements have been made public yet. So, uh, but I'll see what I can do. And I think we need to start from uh, the election itself, where I think the presidential election this year was less a battle between rival policy platforms and more a battle between two very different candidates promising different models of leadership, uh, as Dirk touched on. Uh, Jokowi promised to govern with the people, uh, defining democracy in populist terms as listening to the people's voice and implementing it. And it's hard to convey sort of uh, traveling around the country, meeting people, asking them why they supported Jokowi, just how important his man of the people image was to his popularity. Uh, A friend in Jakarta, an editor there, I think, put it best when he said it was the first time in a long time that Indonesians had seen themselves reflected in a politician. Whereas on the other hand, you had Prabowo, who built an image of firm leadership uh, in which he would essentially govern over people, uh, guiding them to the right path rather than, uh, I guess, having a popular mandate to represent the people's voice. And in policy terms, both candidates broadly pledged to improve the welfare of the people as you'd expect in an election, uh, including pledging to, to bring about higher income, more jobs, better education and health. Uh, and opportunities for social mobility. Uh, but throughout the campaign they, neither of them really delved into the specifics uh, of exactly how they would bring about those platforms. Uh, Jokowi himself only sporadically addressed policy issues in his campaign rhetoric. Uh, at his campaign rallies he was quite often a man of few words. He would often appear and speak only for a few minutes and in those talks uh, seemed to assume that those there were already going to support him and so a lot of the content of his speech was about what they then needed to do over, over the re- remaining time before the election uh, so that he'd win. Uh, when he did talk policy, uh, I at least often found him rather, uh, shall we say, unimpressive. Uh, I found myself during the campaign uh, commenting that I thought Jokowi was the far better candidate, uh, while also personally disagreeing with a lot of the specific policies that he was outlining, or no small number of them at least, and that's a theme I'll return to later in the in the talk. And so if Jokowi didn't speak much about policy at his campaign rallies, uh, there were still some arenas in which both candidates had to talk policy and be a bit more specific. Uh, one is the series of candidate debates that Dirk mentioned earlier. Uh, the other is that each had to submit a written campaign statement uh, to the electoral commission, uh, setting out their so-called vision and mission. And Jokowi's was uh, much more detailed than the the statement Prabowo submitted, running to 42 pages as opposed to Prabowo's 8. But neither the debates nor the campaign statement are a a perfect source uh, to illustrate Jokowi's likely policy platform. Uh, And in fact, since it's become clear that he's won the election, uh, the court case notwithstanding, he's formed a transition team, uh, including uh, some party figures... Uh, some public intellectuals to flesh out that vision and mission into more, uh, I guess, uh, substantive and implementable policies. But despite all of those uh, those caveats in the introduction to the election, there were a few uh, clear policy priorities for Jokowi uh, that emerged during the campaign. Uh, the first of these is economic, uh, where I think a key priority for Jokowi's government will be to address the widening inequality that Indonesia faces and to ameliorate its, own, its, its effects. And addressing inequality is important in its own right. We've seen in some other Southeast Asian countries like Thailand how uh, very wide inequality can destabilise a political system, uh, although that hasn't happened in, in Indonesia to date. But I think it's also a particularly important challenge for Jokowi because he's been elected on the basis that he pays attention to the average person in a way that other politicians don't. And so I think it's crucial for him to make the average voter feel like he's working uh, to make their lives better, uh, even, if the, even if the changes don't necessarily have to, have to be huge. And numerous, numerous economists have mapped out the challenge that uh, Indonesia faces uh, to do with its economy and in inequality. Uh, which we could basically say that over the past decade, uh, Indonesia's economy has grown very rapidly, on average 5.7% per annum after recovering from the financial crisis in 97-98. Uh, and yet over the same period, you can see here, uh, its inequality has widened markedly. And in fact, if you were to continue this graph to 2013, uh, three economists have just published a paper showing that I believe that goes up to uh, 43 so the, uh, the rise in inequality, This guinea coefficient measures between 0 and 100, uh, with 100 being complete inequality and 0 being complete equality. So the higher you, you go up the chart, uh, the higher it becomes. So you really, this period of rapid economic growth, uh, far from making the economy more inclusive, has in fact uh, resulted in broadening inequality. And making matters worse, uh, the incoming government will have few resources in the first instance to address this inequality uh, because Indonesia spends around a quarter of its budget on energy subsidies, which disproportionately favour the middle class, uh, and also uh, because it collects very little tax uh, comparatively as a proportion of GDP. And as a further uh, difficulty, as the economist Hal Hill has outlined in a very accessible piece on the Indonesian economy that I'd recommend to anyone interested in uh, which you can access at the Inside Indonesia website. Uh, Current government policies are, in his words, uh, practically distribution neutral, by which he means the government is not disproportionately spending to to allocate resources to the less well-off rather than those who are better off, as there's little targeting of health and education spending based on need, and Indonesia's social spending is also minimal in comparative terms. So you have this challenge where the government is not spending much to ameliorate uh, inequality, it doesn't have much spare financial resources and yet tackling this inequality is a key challenge for uh, Jokowi coming in as president. Now one of the key planks of Jokowi's policy platform uh, during the election was in fact targeted health and education spending. He has these uh, he's promised a healthy Indonesia card and a smart Indonesia card. And here I've pictured a mock-up uh, that was being handed out at the concert Dirk mentioned just before of what a healthy Indonesia card might look like. Now these uh, two schemes are nationwide extensions of very popular health and education schemes that he's introduced in his previous roles as Mayor of Solo and then Jakarta Governor. Uh, in Solo, the, the two schemes of health and education provided health insurance, education funding, free schooling for the very poor, and uh, a PhD scholar, Wawan Masudi, who's writing a PhD on his time in Solo, uh, outlines that within two to three years of introducing these health and education schemes in Solo, uh, they were covering more than half the population, around half of the population there. And uh, perhaps some of the popularity of those schemes is, re- is reflected in the fact that in Solo, Uh, he was re-elected for a second term with 90% of the vote, which is really an an extraordinary result for any uh, democratic election. So Jokowi, while these are key planks of his, uh, I guess, economic promise to voters, he's yet to outline precisely how a national health or education card would work. And in fact, one of the criticisms of the schemes has been that Indonesia has just started to roll out a universal uh, health insurance scheme uh, under the uh, Health Social Security uh, Agency and people have questioned what the difference between the two schemes will be and how they would complement each other. Uh, that's been held up as a criticism. I actually think it's a, a tremendous opportunity for Jokowi that rather than needing to build a scheme from scratch, uh, he can channel more money into uh, the parts of that scheme that would uh, provide health care to the poor and rebrand it using this Healthy Indonesia card as his own policy. But of course, to do that, uh, to fund his education policies, where he's talking about increasing compulsory education to, to 12 years uh, rather than nine, uh, he and indeed to address the acute need for infrastructure that Indonesia has, uh, Jokowi is going to need new money, as I mentioned. And when Prabowo challenged him on this fact during the campaign, uh, he typically elided the question, saying the challenge wasn't to raise more revenue it was to make more effective use of what Indonesia already had. Uh, And by that, he means things like bureaucratic reform, uh, various e-government measures to increase efficiency, as well as uh, wider efforts to curb corruption. But whatever savings and reallocation Jokowi is able to make, I think we can still assume he's going to need to to increase the revenue streams that, that Indonesia has available to it. And in fact, in his campaign statement, he talks about raising the tax ratio from 12% of GDP to 16% of GDP, although without going into details of of how that will be achieved. But perhaps the the bigger priority in terms of uh, freeing up more revenue is this question of energy subsidies I mentioned earlier, uh, where a quarter of the budget is being spent on energy subsidies, a large proportion of that uh, on subsidies for fuel. And here we have a tanker of the... uh, the uh, state oil and gas provider pertamina in uh, in indonesia now jokowi when he has told journalists uh, that he'll phase out fuel subsidies over the course of 4 years uh, but i think we're entitled looking at the track record of udiono's government to treat that statement with some healthy initial skepticism uh, abolishing subsidies has been a prominent issue throughout the 10 years of Udino's government, and he has on occasion made quite dramatic rises. Uh, In 2005, I think it was, putting the price of petrol up 90% overnight. Uh, But uh, apart from that, you've had times where prices have decreased, where the government has backed down from planned price rises, and a number of slated measures to reduce fuel consumption, uh, they simply haven't followed through. And the reason they haven't, is because uh, raising fuel prices, reducing subsidies, is deeply unpopular uh, in Indonesia. The the Yudhono government never quite won the argument uh, with its point that these subsidies, going to people who have cars, use more electricity disproportionately, favour the better off. And so, uh, Jokowi has a has a difficult decision to make. There, a difficult sell to make to the public all the more so because during the Yudhoyono years, his own party, the Indonesian Democratic Party of Struggle, uh, always was one of the chief opponents of fuel price rises at the time. So overall, I think we can say inequality, addressing inequality is an area where Jokowi is going to have some tough reforms to drive through, uh, making the bureaucracy more efficient, some difficult political decisions to make uh, to do with energy subsidies, Uh, to be able to make some of his signature reforms on education and health effective. Moving on then to politics, uh, and uh, I'll I'll only have time to cover a a few of the challenges in in both the economic and policy sphere. The key challenge for Jokowi, I think, is to deliver on the pledge that he made during the campaign to engage in a new way of doing politics, uh, while at the same time maintaining sufficient support uh, to run a viable government. And it's worth noting that his political challenge is all the more difficult because he's unique among Indonesian presidents who've been democratically elected in not being able to take the support of his own party for granted. Uh, as Dirk mentioned earlier, uh, he received, it seemed, less than wholehearted uh, support from PDIP during the campaign and it was clear even before he was nominated as president that some senior figures within the party uh, would prefer that he wasn't the party's presidential candidate. And when I mention a, a new way of doing politics, uh, throughout 2014, uh, Jokowi has repeatedly pledged to avoid the sort of horse trading that has been typical of Indonesian parliamentary politics and the formation of cabinets to date. Basically, each Democratic-era president has formed what's called a, what's been called a rainbow coalition, including most of the parties uh, in parliament, which gives you a, I guess, melange of interests but hasn't proved effective in really shoring up the support of those parties uh, for a cohesive government agenda. And so back before the legislative election in April that Dirk mentioned, uh, one of the things Jokowi took to voters was the need to have a large vote for PDIP so that he would have a strong base in the parliament and so by extension could avoid this sort of, uh, of trading with other parties. Uh, when PDIP's hopes for more than 30% of the vote were dashed. As Dirk said, they got 19%. Uh, He then talked about forming a a slender coalition. And here you have the leaders of the parties supporting uh, Jokowi, uh, along with Jokowi in the white shirt there, uh, where parties would form without promises at the beginning to receive quotas of uh, ministerial posts or or other, other such inducements to support him. And beyond forming a slender coalition, uh, he also promised a professional cabinet uh, and using his own nomination as president as a as an example of the sort of political recruitment that Indonesia needed, choosing the best person for the job rather than the person who was chair of a party or had other connections. And beyond this, this formation of the cabinet, professionals without promises to parties in advance for their support uh, his campaign statement also promises uh, reforms to party and campaign financing, uh, reforms to the electoral system, reforms to the legislative process, as well as bureaucratic reforms to establish good and clean governance through checks and balances, transparency and accountability. And together, these, these pledges of a way of forming a cabinet, uh, sort of a new form of recruitment and these sort of political reforms were a key point of difference for him with Prabowo. But now, having one, of course, we face the question of how will he deliver. And the first test for him will be the cabinet, and, uh, which uh, sort of, I guess, uh, negotiations are going on behind the scenes at the moment for. And on that, uh, we're already seeing some signs of strain. Uh, For all his pledges to form a professional cabinet, I don't think anyone expects that a president can maintain a viable government without apportioning some seats to his own party and to coalition partners. And on this graph here, I've put the parties that supported Jokowi in the election in the kind of reddish colours. Uh, Dirk was very good earlier. His graph, although he didn't mention uh, parties in Indonesia are associated with colours, and Dirk very conscientiously put the right colour for every party. I've been much more arbitrary here and just put all the ones supporting Jokowi in red and the ones who supported Prabowo in either blue or green and I'll tell you why I've put one in green there in the end. So as you can see, his slender coalition, uh, less than half of the seats uh, in, the, in the legislature. Uh, so, I mean, we have to assume some of the seats are gonna have to go to the parties that support him and the, the questions are more uh, which seats, how many positions, uh, and whether the party figures who get apportioned those those positions will fit with the image of a presidential, of a professional cabinet. As I, uh, we're seeing mixed signals on on that front. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, his transition team, which uh, will in part look at the question of the cabinet, does include uh, some of Indonesia's uh, very prominent public in- intellectuals, uh, not just party people. Uh, one of the volunteer groups that supported Jokowi also fielded a, a kind of public opinion poll on possibilities for cabinet positions, and some of the figures from the the parties that they put in that poll uh, were perhaps some of the more acceptable ones, rather than the. Uh, there are some quite problematic figures in in some of the parties that support Jokowi. Uh, there's also the media has been reporting. Uh, one of the parties supporting him, PKB, uh, who you can see got quite a reasonable share of the vote. Uh, where are we? So uh, there they are there. Um, they have just under a tenth of the seats in Parliament. Uh, sort of uh, has been reporting that they've been wanting some of their senior figures to, uh, to have ministerial posts and in response. Uh, Jokowi had said that it was clear from the beginning there were no pledges of particular seats to particular parties and that in fact he would prefer that if there were ministers from parties that they put aside uh, their position within the party's structure for the, for the period they're in the, they're in the cabinet. And so that, uh, all of that would speak in favour of perhaps a, a more professional cabinet being formed. On the other hand, uh, we see the involvement of some, uh, I guess, what many would consider problematic figures in this transitional team, in particular the former head of state intelligence uh, Hendra Priyono, um, sort of in charge of that agency at the time. It's believed responsible for political assassinations, and also with uh, uh, connected with human rights abuses during the during the Suharto era. Uh, and there are some other problematic security figures uh, close to the Jokowi campaign uh, that we will have to wait and see whether they whether they end up in security related ministries. Uh, also on the the the, the question that would make us wary of how professional the cabinet will be, will be the fact that uh, much as Prabowo termed the party supporting him a permanent co- coalition, it's clear that overtures are being made uh, for some of those parties to jump ship and uh, and and join the Jokowi coalition. Uh, speculation in particular has surrounded Democrat uh, Udiono's party, who I've marked in green there, simply to show that Uh, in terms of seats rather than votes, even if they were to join, you end up with less than half of the parliament uh, in terms of seats. Uh, Also speculation on Golkar, who got the second most seats in the parliament because Jokowi's uh, vice president, Yusuf Kalla, uh, when he last became vice president in 2004 uh, took control of of Golkar after the election and brought them into the government tent. So, Golkar would give a give a majority to the government, but if they and Democrat, for instance, were to come in, all of a sudden you start having the look of this melange of interests that you've had in previous uh, Rainbow Cabinets, where you have a much larger than 50% share of the seats in Parliament, which, as I said, really hasn't proven an effective way to to lock in uh, interests. And the decisions Jacobi makes on how he forms this Cabinet will, of course, affect how he deals with the Parliament, uh, whether it will be through a majority or whether, like minority governments in other countries, he deals with uh, the Parliament on individual pieces of legislation and tries to make deals on those. And we really await, wait and see to see the sort of cabinet he forms, to see his early days uh, dealing with the Parliament after he's sworn in in October, uh, to see uh, how he will go on, the, on that political front. And one asset he has in dealing with the people is his popular mandate. And here's a picture from that concert uh, at the end of the campaign that uh, that Dirk mentioned. Uh, if you look closely, you might see a bald head somewhere in the crowd there, which uh, I uh, actually had my passport stolen at that uh, at that concert. <laughs> but it was good to be there anyway. Um, and uh, the uh, so one of the assets he has dealing. Uh, with the parliament will be his popular support, and the way his man of the people image really does stir very strong passions, uh, even among people in parts of the country that, that he'll never visit. And the opinion to marshal public opinion can be a strong force in dealing with the parliament. Uh, to do the, the parliament has a number of times tried to weaken the anti-corruption commission in Indonesia, and has essentially been strength of public opinion each time, uh, which has caused them to back down. But populism can also be a two-edged sword. Uh, Jokowi's detractors, in fact, uh, criticise him on the basis that they predict as president that he will too closely follow public opinion. And that poll for cabinet positions I mentioned uh, certainly raised eyebrows on that front. Although it was conducted by a volunteer uh, organisation, Jokowi did express general uh, approval of the polling process itself whereas I guess those are the sorts of decisions that that many would see better taken out of the public spotlight. Uh, And I guess it's this challenge for Jokowi of making the transition with the election one as important as the volunteer organisations were to him, he'll now move to a period where uh, he simply can't involve them and the public in in every decision his government is making. So if I were to sum up the challenges for Jokowi in in just a sentence or two, uh, he was voted in as a populist, and his challenge, though, will be to temper those populist leanings and make hard and unpopular decisions to, to deliver on his key policies. And he's going to have to do this in the face of the fragmented parliament that Dirk mentioned earlier, uh, limited support potentially from his own party, and having promised to do all of this with a, with a new style of politics. So it's really uh, quite a strong challenge that he faces. And with this political tightrope that Jokowi uh, will have to walk, uh, the, big que- the big question that looms over him is his inexperience in national politics. Because although he's where he is, because he was an extremely successful uh, local-level politician, as I said, re-elected with 90% of the vote in Solo and very popular as uh, Jakarta governor, uh, Jokowi's detractors wonder out aloud Uh, whether he has sufficient understanding of the much wider range of issues that a president has to deal with, and whether he'll have the uh, nous to drive his policies through the parliament. And those are certainly legitimate concerns to raise, but I I would raise a couple of counterpoints. uh, On policy, as I mentioned earlier, there's no question that Jokowi has limitations. Uh, His written campaign statement, while detailed, clearly reflects the input of, of some of the experts he's gathered. But I think that in itself is is an encouraging sign that he really did bring together some of Indonesia's leading public intellectuals in that campaign team and I think that opens the possibility that he'll be open to people with genuine expertise in some of the policy areas that he hasn't previously dealt with, something the political scientist Jerry Van Klinken has called the possibility of him being a citizen's president. I don't think we should overplay that, though. Uh, We shouldn't assume that... Uh, Some of the policies, uh, I guess, to do with economic self-sufficiency, protectionism, some of the education policies will simply go away after being mentioned in the campaign and not be part of his presidency. Uh, I think, you know, we need to look at his party. Some of those positions are are quite consistent with where his party is coming from. Uh, Protectionism, involvement of the state in the the economy are, are quite mainstream. Positions in, in Indonesia, and, and so I think uh, the likely involvement of experts is encouraging, but we shouldn't also imagine that the uh, that Jokowi's policy agenda will be exactly as every individual uh, would like it to be. Uh, the second counterpoint that I'd raise on this question of inexperience is really to ask whether the, the expectations of, of experience are realistic. Uh, one of the real features of this election was this idea of disillusionment with the, with the way politics was being done in Indonesia, very low public regard for politicians and most political institutions. And in a democracy that's only 16 years old, uh, to talk of inexperience when you have a candidate with 10 years of local level experience running government, uh, you know, uh, someone more experienced you feel would have been part of the existing establishment. So I think sometimes some of those criticisms can can be a little bit unrealistic on that front. And the third point I would make is that Chacoe doesn't necessarily need to meet uh, all of the expectations to be a success as a politician. To date, he's stood out at local level with just a few signature reforms, with his style of politics, of of being a man of the people and consulting. And because of him visibly rolling up his sleeves in a way that's been uncommon for for Indonesian officials. Here you see him uh, during floods in Jakarta uh, getting out and uh, and sort of inspecting the scene. And that sort of approach has been good enough to date to set him apart from the vast majority of leadership candidates in Indonesia and has almost become a template, I would argue, for popularity at local level. Uh, I've put here a picture of the very popular mayor of... uh, Surabaya, Tri Risma Harini, who you can see wearing the uh, white hard hat there, fighting a fire in Surabaya. Uh, Here is an image that's generated, uh, circulated recently on social media of the uh, director of the Indonesian trains, uh, inspecting trains uh, during the period where uh, Muslims returned home uh, at the end of the fasting month. And so these, these, Visible demonstrations of rolling up sleeves uh, uh, are very popular within Indonesia. And I think, uh, as I said earlier, one of the challenges for Jokowi is really to continue to be seen, to be really working uh, to make Indonesians' lives better. So while I think it's almost inevitable that Jokowi will fall short of some expectations given given the hopes that people are placing in him, uh, I think it's worth remembering as well people... Uh, many observers are comparing him to Obama and the way that Obama fell short of expectations, but Obama was re-elected for a second term and remained quite popular. And you could see a, a, a similar thing happening with Jokowi, even if he does uh, fall short of some of the more far-reaching expectations. Finally, and very quickly, uh, I just uh, the blurb for the talk mentioned foreign policy. Uh, and how uh, foreign policy would fare under a president with no experience dealing with international affairs. And uh, so I think, despite this, uh, I really think we can expect continuity uh, as the most likely outcome from the foreign policy that we've seen under President Udiyono, at least in Jokowi's first term in office. Uh, Nothing in his written campaign statement, and there's Uh, A couple of pages in it on foreign policy suggests a dramatic departure from the foreign policy settings Indonesia has at the moment. And given the domestic priorities he has and his own inexperience in international affairs, uh, I think it's likely Jokowi will delegate a lot of foreign policy to a career diplomat foreign minister. And in fact, the last couple of foreign ministers in Indonesia over a very long span of time have been career diplomats. Uh, the views of Korea diplomats are, are more familiar and, of course, feed directly into Indonesia's current poli- foreign policy and the con- continuity could be particularly direct, of course, uh, if the current foreign minister, Marty Natalagawa, were to continue in that role, uh, which is not out of the question. So I'll stop there. Thanks a lot.
0: Well, as promised, um, if people have to run, now is the time to run. But we've got about um, twenty-five minutes or so for questions. Um, anything quickly from the floor? Okay, I I'm, might I'm just sort of quickly summarise for the purposes of the, the podcast. So the question is basically around what can we expect from Jokowi with regard to, to West Papua, particularly given the questions about whether this is a political decision or a substantive
2: promise to, to increase autonomy. I think you know, again, let's wait and see who your points in the cabinet. Uh, oh, go on, be a bit more. <laughs> no, no. Well, that's the first sentence. Of my answer, <laughs> is uh, one of the real challenges on Papua to date has been there are clearly people within the government who are of much hardline, much harder line nationalist positions, and others more open to uh, dialogue. Uh, so, when you have opponents within the government, unless you have a president who really throws their political weight uh, behind efforts to take a new approach to to Papua, then you you don't know, get much progress. And, uh, indeed, uh, as you mentioned, uh, sort of the hopes for a constructive dialogue have, have kind of stalled under Udiona. Um On, as you mentioned again, on the access for foreign journalists, uh, whether this was a considered response or something just because the question was put to him, uh, I guess we'll see over time. Uh, uh, I really think it. There should be free access for foreign journalists and researchers to Papua. I think it's counterproductive, the Indonesian government, to restrict that. Uh, But each time this has been raised to the foreign minister, uh, you've kind of uh, had, I guess, evasive answers saying, oh, actually, people are are free to go there at the moment. And so, uh, again, we'll wait to see whether whether Jokowi really puts his political weight uh, behind that. Uh, by coincidence, the day Jokowi was in Jayapura, I happened to be there uh, for unrelated reasons and went along to a couple of the, the campaign rallies he, he held there. My impression was that the focus was much more on the, uh, I guess, uh, education and health policies uh, than anything else uh, that may be, because, as you mentioned, uh, he was already extremely confident uh, of getting uh, very significant support in, uh, in Papua... Uh, given many Papuans' concerns uh, with, with Prabowo's track record. Um, so, yeah, it, it's hard to be more definitive than that. Uh, Jokowi made a point of going to Papua very early in the campaign, uh, but after that I, I wouldn't say Papua and uh, exactly what his approach would be to it featured, to my memory at all, really, during during the campaign. And so, yeah, we, we wait to see what sort of government he forms. Dirk, did you want to add anything, or are you...? Uh, Yeah, just briefly one
1: point about something that you mentioned. I think
2: whatever his approach
1: to Papua will be is what we must consider is his relation with parliament because I think one of the main problems in Papua that we've seen over the last 10 years is the massive fragmentation in Papua into ever smaller political entities. Um, There are now countless new districts and there are proposals to create five, I think three or five new provinces in Papua. Um, So there is now... And that's, I think, is a direct response to various policies that Jakarta has put forward. And parliament is um, the institution that approves these applications for new districts. The more new districts you have, the more new local political players you create who have interests, and these interests may differ. We see that already now, just simply between the governors of Papua and West Papua. They have different interests and different ideas for the future of Papua. So the more you create of that, And a lot of that goes through Parliament. Jacobi will have to go through Parliament, through the local leaders there, and I think that makes it very complicated. So whatever he has in mind, I don't think anything will happen overnight or fast, but it will be slow.
0: Hmm. So so the question is around the, how Jacobi was able to pull off populist moderation or moderate populism. (laughs) Hmm.
1: I think initially that worked well for him, but I think in the campaign, what you say, what happens usually in these kinds of populist contests, actually played out in Indonesia as well. He did not actually generate any momentum throughout the campaign. The only candidate who could generate momentum was Prabowo with exactly what he was saying, sonophobic, aggressive, sort of hardline um, populism. Joe Covey started from a position of strength, and he was able to... um, to create this image of his at the local level, where you don't need this kind of xenophobic, hard-iron approach. And then through the dynamics of decentralization, local politics, you switch to a slightly higher level from a small town in Java to Jakarta, where he could still do the same thing, but already needed to include many more stakeholders and many more public media. But he had that image, and he started off with that at, as I said, around 50% popularity because he was a man of the people. But when he came to national politics, it wasn't actually very successful. He just stagnated on where he was and was not able to actually counter what Prabhu was throwing at him.
0: Until Dave
2: went to the rock concert and, uh, and <laughs> pushed him
0: over the line. Dave, did you want to add anything?
2: Um, no, I think, uh, yeah, uh, you know, sort of it was a real feature of the campaign that there were many opportunities for Jokowi's campaign to counter the issues that Prabhu was p- putting forward to. Uh, more clearly draw contrast between him and Prabowo, uh, for instance, uh, sort of highlighting perhaps some of this anti-democratic rhetoric that you were getting out of Prabowo, but they largely chose not to do it uh, and, and, you know, kind of relied on sticking with their own image. And, yeah, that really, I do think, accounted for some of how close Prabowo was able to get to winning the election. Uh, You did have a bounce at the end. Uh, I don't think we're quite sure why that happened, uh, whether it was... Uh, people who previously hadn't been engaged in politics but became engaged because of the prospect of a presidency, whether it was he, he announced uh, uh, nine uh, broadly social and economic policies in the last week of the campaign, whether it was the concert and the debate. But, so you did have that bounce at the end. But yes, overall, uh, Prabowo gained great ground through uh, this creating this false sense of crisis during the campaign. Uh, and Jokowi didn't do nearly enough to, to counter it. So
0: um, the question is, is Prabowo going to destabilise, haunt, haunt the presence, haunt the which I quite kind of like? So de- you know, the sort of
2: ongoing destabilisation he might cause. Maybe, but not certainly. Uh, would be uh, part of part of the reason uh, Prabowo was able to be such a formidable force uh, was because he had some very powerful. Uh, Businessman whose interests lay with him at the time of the campaign, Uh, Hari Khanusadibyo, who owns sort of media network, Abu Rizal Bakri, who owns other media. Uh, Bakri's interests lie with Bravo at the moment because that's where he's taken Golkar, that's where he's taken his political fortunes. Uh, If he loses control of Golkar, if uh, Golkar goes into the Jacobi tent, suddenly TV1 and more particularly TV1 don't have the same interest in. Uh, sort of working against Jokowi. Uh, The same for Hari Tanosunibyo. He's already been in two different political parties and then when the second political party was in support of Jokowi, he moved over to Prabowo's side. So, I mean, no guarantee that those TV channels will will continue to oppose Jokowi. Uh, In the parliament as well, uh, has talked about a permanent coalition, but uh, the parties have dissented and you're already seeing signs of people jumping ship. Uh, I don't recall who it was, but it was uh, one of the... Politicians from those parties said, "Well, you can't assume that Prabowo will lead an opposition because Gerindra didn't even get the most votes of the the parties who are not currently in the Jokowi's camp." Um, so, you know, while you can't discount someone who has really shown a willingness to take steps to wreck the political system in his bid to be president, that he will be a disruptive influence, and he still has great financial resources at his disposal to be so. Uh, I, I think. You know, we certainly shouldn't take it as a fait accompli that uh, Jokowi's presidency will be sort of, uh, I guess, significantly disrupted by him throughout. Um, the ball, again, is in Jokowi's court there as well. If he runs an effective presidency that's popular with the public, then I think Prabowo fades into the past. Uh, if his presidency is less effective, then we start thinking about who will the, who will the challenges be in five years, whether it's Prabowo or, or someone else.
0: Doug, or you? Yeah,
1: uh, yeah. Questions <laughs> about the future. Difficult. but, but I also am re- relatively confident that that it won't happen. Uh, that he won't weaken recover significantly. He will probably try, given what we've seen to what lengths he's gone in order to try to win the presidency. But partly because of what Dave just said, the Indonesian political landscape just doesn't work like that. You know, they will. Most of the players who were with him now will inevitably try to. Sort of go back reverberates to the Jokowi We can, um, so I think probably best best hope is that Jokowi will just completely fail and that he can capitalize on that. But um, yeah, uh, let's let's hope that that won't happen.
0: Okay, say so. so the the question relates to the ways in which Jokowi used language and different types of language to appeal to different audiences. I leave that mostly to you because
1: okay. you actually yeah, yes. observed the campaign. But just one brief point about the cultural aspect, perhaps, or the charismatic aspect of Jokowi. When he was losing ground against Prabowo in the campaign, that relates to George's earlier question, apparently his advisors told him not to try to counter this because they believed the voters wouldn't appreciate it. It would run counter his image as the humble guy, so he should just leave it. And that, I think, ties into a lot of this idea of the Javanese restrained figure who doesn't do these things. But if you ask me, I think it was counterproductive. I think he um, should actually have been more proactive in countering these things. But what did you do on the campaign, yeah.
2: Um Well, I should preface it by saying uh, for the legislative election, I really did go around and, you know, concentrate on the way people were campaigning. Um, for the presidential election, I was more looking at uh, what sort of foreign policy Indonesia will have <coughs> a new president. But I did, when I had the opportunity, go and go to these <coughs> campaigns. Um, so from what I, what I saw, what really stood out to me, uh, because Jokowi was typically late, very late to his campaign, so I would often find myself standing there through a long succession of support speakers before it got to him. And when you see all these other speakers and you know their way of trying to deal with the crowd is speaking in a loud voice and very, I guess, impassioned, uh, almost at the risk of drawing too close a parallel, kind of a similar oratory style in many ways to Prabowo, uh, then uh, how Jokowi really stood out is his conversational way of, of addressing a crowd. Uh, he's much more relaxed in the way he talks. Uh, at one of the rallies I went to, he uh, sort of got down from the stage, stood on a little step ladder, and asked everyone to sit down while he was talking. Um, and so he didn't speak for very long. Um, uh, as I said, he often spoke uh, assuming that the people there already supported him and so didn't launch into long platforms. So he had this, this almost conversational manner. Uh, in those campaign rallies. Uh, And I think that more than any particular... I mean, that is an oratory style in itself, but more than any particular oratory prowess was what really set him apart. Um, I still remember uh, when, as I mentioned, the sort of things were looking difficult for them. A week to go to the election, they had this press conference in Bundung, uh, where they launched these nine programs, uh, sort of social and economic programs. And he it was almost as if... In fact, I think he was reading it out off a piece of paper, stumbling over words, uh, reading out each point twice. Uh, you know, it simply wasn't a polished piece of oratory. Uh, and, you know, uh, whether that feeds into his Man of the People image or it, or it illustrates a genuine weakness... Um, yeah, uh, I mean, his charisma was not, I guess... Uh, the charisma of of a great orator. It was it was a, a different style of communication, which uh, more conversational style that, that really worked uh, with, for, for a hell of a lot of people. So the question is really the, big, the not inconsiderable matter
0: of the future of Indonesian democracy. <laughs> 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 You've each got 90 seconds. So. <laughs> no, take hold that if you need
1: to. Should we start with that poll that we discussed before we came? I don't know if you saw the latest post-election poll. that um, was published, I think, yesterday, or the day before yesterday, which asked these kinds of questions, and it revealed somewhat star- some some sort of startling data, which makes you wonder how reliable polls are in general. But the point is that um, questions being asked to the respondents, you know, um, uh, what do you think the Yudigono period was democratic? Um, how would you describe the, um, the Suhata period was that democratic? Or which um, uh, do you think is the best system for Indonesia, etc.? In all these kinds of questions, there were several all relating to Indonesia's future as a democracy. And then they split that between Prabowo and Drakovi waters. And apparently it was more or less even in both camps. It's not that the pro-democrats all water for Dracobi and the anti-democrats all watered for Prabovo. Not quite. It was just even, there were just as many people who said, we favor democracy, we think democracy is great, who voted for Bobo, and people who were more reluctant to commit, who voted for goal So, with polls and with the attitude of, so when I saw the, to bring that back to the result, when I saw the result, I thought, it's, Okay, it's good. Jakowi got over the line. It's definitely good for the future of Indonesia's democracy. But we should not discount the forty-seven or forty-six percent voted for Prabowo, who was quite openly anti-democratic. What does that say about the sentiment towards democracy? But it seems, maybe, um, as I said, the, the poll, uh, this latest poll, the, the various features of that will need to be dissected a bit more clearly. But I think. At the top level now, we have the best possible outcome, and it's up to Jokowi to make that work now. There are very urgent reform measures that need to be done to make just the system more efficient, and I think that will strengthen democracy. Um, Prabowo wouldn't have done it, so it's certainly better that we get Jokowi to at least try. Whether he will be effective and successful, of course, it's impossible to predict. Um, but I think he, he's at least aware of the issues, and um, starting with Papua, as was raised before, it um, won't be his priority, but he's aware of that, that there is the need for reform, bureaucratic reform, um, the relations between parliament and executive, etc. So I think it's safe to say that, for the moment, Indonesia's democracy is safe. Um, but ask me again in a year, and then we'll see what he's done in his first year. <laughs>
2: Um, Yeah, I'd I'd probably just go back to uh, sort of... I gave a talk on Indonesian politics last September where I said Jokowi's emergence changed the question we were asking about politics, of previously wondering whether a flawed democratic system could withstand efforts from... I didn't mention him by name, but I meant Prabowo to to wind back uh, democracy, and I think we saw clear indications in, in his rhetoric during the campaign and what he's done since, that he would have attempted to wind back elements of democracy had he been president, and the question would have been uh, sort of whether others would have gone along with him, what sort of resistance he would have encountered uh, to with Jokowi, where you have uh, again with these pledges of reform, uh, the question of, uh, I guess, whether he'll be able to drive that agenda forward to the to the extent that he remains committed to it uh, against some of the vested interests that you have in the political system, and that is a is a much more enticing question for the for the future of Indonesian democracy. Uh, we shouldn't discount the fact that. Uh, you know, someone like Prabowo was able to get forty-seven percent of the vote. Um, but I, you know, there's been commentary has come out today to the effect that the election was a referendum on democracy. And I really don't think Indonesian voters saw it that way. Um, uh, sort of, I, I think they saw it as uh, a choice between two leaders offering very different models of leadership. Uh, Jokowi with his more participatory leadership, and Prabowo with his firm leadership. And, my feeling is that a lot of the people who supported Prabowo saw his firm leadership uh, as compatible with democracy, even if I don't think it was. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, you know, don't think that 47% uh, indicates, you know, 47% who were, uh, I guess, ambivalent or or against democracy. And I think. We've seen that in the fact that when Prabowo withdrew from the election, uh, his vice-president, well, seemed to withdraw from the election because his team then put him back in. His vice-president didn't sign on the statement and, and kind of disappeared from public view for several days. Uh, you see it in the fact that uh, a far smaller proportion than the proportion that voted for him appear to believe his claims that the the election was rigged. And so, yeah, I, I think a lot of the support for Prabowo has has moved on uh, and we can't read a vote for him as, as necessarily you know, a vote against democracy, much as the fact that he was able to emerge and become so popular shows uh, yeah, the, the real potential for a candidate running an anti-democratic agenda to still emerge. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's right. a bit disorganised, but hopefully that suffices. Excellent. I'm afraid we're going
0: to have to bring it to a, to a close, but before we do so, i just say a few quick things about Latrobek. Um, Latrobe Asia activities. Um, many of you may not be aware. Latrobe Asia was established. Part of the reason uh, was to help the university sort of grapple with and un- better understand the things going on in the region of which we're a part. And I think today's seminar has been a- absolutely you know, first-rate uh, contribution to that. And and would more than meet my at least one of, one quarter of one tenth of my KPIs. So I'm very happy. Um, If you're a student and you're not on our, or anyone and you're not on our mailing list, please sign up. We regularly have events like this, but also we have announcements about scholarship opportunities, mobility opportunities, a whole range of other things. So please let us know your details. We will send you good news and we will harass you regularly about things that we do. Um, Finally, our next event is on the 1st of September, and it's looking at suicide in Asia, particularly looking at lessons about suicide prevention coming from a prominent Latrobe alumni who works in Hong Kong. So um, keep an eye, we'll post um, information about that Um, shortly once we've got the exact time and date worked out, but it'll be on the 1st of September. Uh, And that means all we have left to do is to thank our two speakers for fantastic discussion.